um, with, with Rick and Rach and uh, went to uh, beaches along the west coast in, in uh, Innes Park. And uh, it reminded me of something I meant to say last week. Uh, this is what you get for abandoning your notes in the sermon. <laughs> um, is that we were standing on these huge, you know, those huge big granite rocks that poke out into the sea down there. Um, <laughs> I speak of them. <laughs> I was just talking about you. <laughs> um, yeah, these these huge rocks that, that stick out into the sea along the coast there. And, um, uh, listening to John Piper a couple of weeks ago, he was saying that the reason that God made rocks like that and the reason he made bread, as we were talking about last week, is so that we would know something about him. Um, we, so I can, we can stand on those big granite rocks and how they're just the waves beat against them continuously, but they're just, they seem to never change and they're immovable. Um, and if you want to stand behind one, you can protect yourself. They teach us something about God. In the same way that bread, as we spoke about last week, with Jesus saying, I'm the bread of life, and the way bread satisfies our physical needs, so Jesus satisfies our spiritual needs. So, uh, yeah, that's, like, that's just an update on last week's sermon. Um, today, though, we, we move on from that, um, but, but really the, the whole of the, the Gospel of Luke has been asking this question, as we've said every week, is, uh, is who is this? Who is this man? Who is this who can heal unhealable people? Uh, who is it who, who can uh, cast out demons, even hordes of demons, without any trouble at all? It's just a spoken word and they're gone. Uh, who is this who can forgive sins? How, how can that be? How can someone except God forgive sins? Um, who, who can speak to the winds and the waves and they obey him? And who, last week we saw, who, who can make bread and fish out of thin air, out of nothing, that just suddenly are there? And so today Jesus puts the disciples on the spot a bit and he says, who do the, who do the people say that I am? He asks them that, just straight out asks them the question, who, do people, who are these crowds saying that I am? And they say, well, some of them, Say, um, say Elijah, uh, some of them say John the Baptist, and some of them say that one of the old-time prophets has been raised up again. And the fact that there was no general agreement about who Jesus was, you know, that he wasn't, he wasn't definitely this one or that one, just shows that he didn't really fit any of these, uh, any of these um, examples. It was a bit like some of them, but not really the same. In fact, nowhere, nowhere near the same. And, and then Jesus goes on and asks them, puts them on the spot, but what about you? You know, Who do you say that I am? Who do you think I am? And they should know because they've been with him more than anyone else. And straight away, Peter, who's the, who always is the one who comes out with something, usually something rash, but um, he says, you are the Christ of God. You are the Messiah. And then it's interesting what follows that Jesus strictly tells, he doesn't just tell, he strictly tells them you must not tell anyone about this. But why is that so? Why, why has he said that? Well it's because, I think it's because if you were the Messiah and, and all the people of Israel had this strange idea of who, of what the Messiah is and what he should do, then, the, then if, if everyone found out that he's the Messiah, if everyone, the disciples went and told everyone this is the Messiah, well then they would come and take him by force as we see in John's Gospel 
they were going to take him by force and make him a king because then he would raise up a great army and fix all their problems and drive the Romans out and everything would be just like in the days of King David and Solomon and Israel would be returned to its former glory. Because that's what a Messiah did. That's what, that's what the Messiah was for. But then Jesus goes on to, to tell them what it means, what it really means to be the Messiah. The Son of Man must suffer. Isaiah 53, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. On him was the punishment laid that made us whole. The Messiah must suffer. And he must be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the lawyers. Once again from Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men. At Jesus' crucifixion at his trial before, the, before these same men, the, the Sanhedrin, they judged his claim to be the Messiah and rejected it. You are not what we had in mind. And on the third day, the Messiah is going to be raised to life. How many times did Jesus say that? And yet, they didn't hear. So Peter's answer when he said, you are the Christ of God, is kind of, the, it's, of course it's the right answer. But it's kind of like getting the right answer in your maths exam in question two and, you know, the answer's 27 and you put that down and that's, that's correct, but then you don't show how you got it. Uh, you might get one point out of five, but uh, it's not going to be convincing. And it, that's kind of like Peter's answer, I think. Because they, they, just, they just didn't hear him. They, everything that Jesus said about him going to suffer and die and rise again was, was like, it was over their heads like spray and stay. It just... He may as well have not said it. Then he goes on. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self. These are strong and challenging and difficult words, aren't they? And I guess the, the question they, they propose for, for all of us, but especially for preachers, is what does this look like in practice? What, is, what does it mean for me here and now? Um, you know, when, when I, I'd read this passage um, couple of weeks ago to, to begin preparing a sermon and at the time Joe and I were, uh, our, our daily job every morning was to go stone picking. We'd go out and pick a, a ute load of rocks. Um, which, you know, it's, there's worse jobs in the world, especially if you've got someone to do it with. It's, uh, it's a lot more fun with two than one. But, uh, but the, the thought that was going through my head was, if I were to take up my cross every day and follow Jesus, what does that actually look like? How does that apply to stone picking? Um, and I didn't ring up John and ask him that. Um, and he kind of didn't really give me an answer, I didn't think, um, which I'm not surprised at. Because he said, that is actually the worst example I can think of to try and <laughs> apply it to. Um, I, I guess the, the problem is that it's very easy for when, when we preach on this topic to slip into the law and give you a list of things that you must do 
or things that, things that you mustn't do if you're going to take up your cross and follow Jesus. Um, and it's easy to load people up with loads that they cannot bear, which are too heavy for them to carry and then not lift a finger to help them. Uh, it's, it's just not that simple because it's different for everyone. Let me give you an example. Suppose there are uh, two marriages, two, two, two husbands and wives, and, uh, and both, I'm taking this from the size, side of the husbands, but you can easily turn it around. Both of them are Christians. Both of them desire to, to live a godly life, and both of them desire to take up their cross every day and follow the Lord Jesus. And for both of them, as far as their marriage is concerned, they, they have looked at that and decided, well, what I must do is to love my wife as Christ loved the church, because that is what I'm commanded to do, uh, no matter how difficult that is. Now, both of them have been married for 20-odd years, and both of them have done that for 20-odd years. However, for one of them, it has been a total joy because his wife reciprocates that love and she also is totally committed to the marriage to make it work and she also wants to, to love her husband as Christ loved the church. And so for one, one man it's, it's easy and everything goes smoothly. The other one has a wife who has, has difficulties. She has mental health problems. She, she doesn't reciprocate his love. She does sometimes, but a lot of the time she doesn't. She goes into moods of dark depression and it's very difficult for him. And there's plenty of times where he's tempted almost to more than he can stand to, to give up. And so you can see that from the outside, these two examples might look very similar and, we, and, and this is the danger in making a law and saying this is how you should do this. Because for one, it is going to be far different to the other one. And so um, when it comes to, to this thing of taking up our cross and following the Lord Jesus, it, 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 we simply cannot make hard and fast rules. And uh, it seems to me that it, it's one of those things where it comes down to God's guidance informed by the word. That, you know, for each of us, we must, we must struggle with this. We must plead with God to show us where to go in everything and, and, and immerse ourselves in his, in his word, in the Bible, so that we don't make silly decisions that are uninformed. You know, um, a couple of years ago, we, in, the, in Middleton here, I know a lot of you were there, we had this, uh, uh, the hymn fest uh, that was organised by our good friend Malcolm here. And uh, look, really, I don't remember much about it, except that me and Pete did a, sang a, a version of... Um, as well with my soul that was received well by some and badly by others. Um, and you hear the performance today. And, but the, but, the, but the, what, the only other thing I actually remember about that day was uh, was when Malcolm sang a song that I'd never heard before. And it's, uh, it's called He, he Keeps His Eye on, on the Sparrow. And uh, uh, for some reason, I, you know, just occasionally a song will, will really touch you and that one touched me. And... Uh, um, he has his eye on the sparrow and, he know, and I know he watches me, I think is the line. Is that right? That's right, Malcolm. Um, so it seemed to me that if we're 
comfortable with that idea of our holy God watching over every part of our life, if we're quite comfortable with that, well, then we're probably somewhere near the right path. Whereas if we're uncomfortable with that and there's parts of our lives where we don't want him to be watching, well, then that's probably something where we need to be struggling with it and doing something about it. John sent me a, uh, a thing that he, he knew I was wrestling with this sermon and he sent me a, a quotation from, from Calvin. And uh, like most of Calvin's things, you, you actually have to read it about ten times before you really <laughs> understand it. But I, I'll, I'll try and read it slowly. It is indeed fitting that the Christian consider that his entire life stands in relation to God. And just as he submits all he is and all he does to God's judgment and decision, so he also refers religiously every intention of his mind to God. So that's the kind of thing we're, we're aiming for, to be so under the, the, the guidance and control of God uh, and where we're, everything we do, we think about it in relation to God, uh, then I think that's then we're getting close to, to what Jesus requires of us here. Let's look at a couple of biblical examples. Later on in, um, in Luke's Gospel, we, in chapter 18, we come to the, the rich young ruler. Um, in Luke, he's just called a rich ruler, but in Mark, it's, he's, he's, we're also told that he's young. Uh, the one who comes to Jesus and asks what he must do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus lists off a few of the commandments and he says, well, I've obeyed all them since my youth. Uh, he, he was a good man. He, he, he's the sort of man that you would want as your neighbour or, or you would want your daughter to marry him. Um, but then Jesus said to him, one thing you lack, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. But that was just a step too far for him. He just simply couldn't do it because of the cost was, was too high. Uh, in Mark's Gospel, uh, we're, told that Je- we're told that Jesus looked at the young man and loved him. And, and I often, often wonder what became of that young man because Jesus could see the turmoil in his soul. Surely, surely he would have gone home and uh, when he thought about it, he would have decided which one was actually the more valuable. Uh, this is what I should do. Now the other, the other biblical example, so, so that's an example of how not to do it, I guess, how not to, to follow Jesus. So the other one of how to is, is the Lord Jesus himself. You know, he, he went to weddings, he went to parties, he went to funerals, uh, he was invited out to, to, to dine with, with important people. Uh, he hung out with his mates Essentially, he did all the things that we do. Um, but hanging over it all was the cross. Everything he did in his life was controlled by this, that he knew his destiny. His destiny was the cross and nothing that he did or didn't do was ever going to, to interfere with that. And that's kind of, you know, that's, that's kind of what we're, the, the position we're in. Our ultimate goal is the resurrection. I want to be part of the resurrection, like the Apostle Paul said. I want to be there at the resurrection, and so everything we do in this life must be controlled by that. 
if anything's going to interfere with that, then it's not worth having. Get rid of it. It's not, not, not what you want. We need to, um, you know, in this question, whole thing, we need to examine ourselves honestly to see if we are in the faith. And, and I think one way we can do that is to come up with a, a sort of a hypothetical position of what would I do if. Suppose we had a, you know, I think we we're a long way off this, but suppose we had a government who opposed us. Uh, what, what if if a government came to power in Australia who, who decided to control the church the way that they, the Chinese government does, who, who came to us and said, to, to us here at Gospel Church and said, you can no longer keep meeting in this this riffraff, this, this rabble church, it's so unorganised. If you want to worship God, you come to our government church, the one that we appoint. We, we have one church in this town and you will go to it or not go at all. We'd rather you didn't go at all, but, but if you're going to go, go to that one. And, and if you don't, then we will make life very difficult for you. We will take away your, your job. We will take away your home. We will take away your farm. We will take away everything you have. You'll, you will have to beg for your food. If we, put our, if we can imagine ourselves in that position, as, as so many people in the world are in that position, of course, are we prepared to pay the price? Would we be prepared to pay the cost? To answer that, honestly, I, I don't know. I, I'd, I'd love to think that I would. But when I look at the other decisions I've made in my life about much simpler things and got them wrong, I'm not at all confident that I would. But that is, that is the kind of thing we may be called to do. Remember that uh, James, the Apostle James tells us that friendship with this world is hatred towards our God. They're strong words. Um, we, we can also look at, the, uh, at Paul's letter to the Philippians, which, which has a lot of guidance on this subject. Um, in, in chapter 3, he says, he's, he's talking about how somehow he wants to attain to the resurrection from the dead. And he says, not that I've already obtained all this, or I've already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, I forget what lies behind and strain forward to what is ahead. I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. So, you know, I can, I can tend to look back and, and look at all the mistakes I've made and get down about it and think, well, I'm not going to make it. But that's not what we're to do. We're not to look back. We're to look forward. <coughs> we, we're not dead yet. Um, there's still life. The resurrection is still waiting for us and we must walk in that path, taking up our cross every day. Now before we uh, move on to the transfiguration, there is just that problem of verse 27. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Uh, because there can be a... Uh, the I think one of the natural things to do is to read and think that Jesus is talking about his return, uh, and therefore he got it wrong. You know, he didn't. He thought he'd be back sooner than this. 
But that's not what it means. I, and you can tell that it's not what it means because he says um, some here who are standing here will not taste death. Well, after Jesus' return, you're not going to die. That's the end of death. So it doesn't make sense to say they're not going to taste death until he returns. Anyway, so the three... There's, a, there's several possibilities for what he was talking about. Uh, one of them is possibly the, uh, the resurrection. They won't taste death until they see the resurrection uh, of the Lord Jesus. Uh, or it could be the day of Pentecost when the, the Spirit is poured out on the church where the kingdom of God is um, you know, doing great things. It's, it, the kingdom of God is, is moving forward. But I think, I think what it refers to is what this passage that comes next, the transfiguration. Because he says there are some standing here. Uh, so that, and we read that Jesus, the next thing, about eight days later, that Jesus took Peter and James and John. So it seems to me that, that this, this vision of Jesus uh, in his full glory uh, may have been what, what he was referring to here. So he takes them up a mountain to pray and, and his face is changed and his clothes are changed. Uh, and he becomes like he actually is. Remember that Jesus has, has cast off um, his holiness, well not his holiness, his, his, all these things that they are seeing now have been his, his uh, I can't think of the word, his, um, uh, it, Paul uses it in, in Philippians, but no, it doesn't matter. You know what I mean. He's, he's, he's put it all aside. He's become a man. But suddenly, here he is up on the mountains and he's changed and he's like, they're seeing him as he actually is, how he was, how he has been for all eternity. Um, that's what they're seeing. And they see Moses and Elijah too. And they are also in glory. They're, they're shining just like he is. Uh, I don't know how Peter knew that this was uh, Moses and Elijah. I assume that he heard them talking about Jesus' coming death and resurrection and so he knew who it was. Uh, they were kind of a bit sleepy, didn't really know what they were saying, but then suddenly they're wide awake and they saw his glory, the glory that Jesus has always had. Now, does this whole scene remind you of anything? Uh, you know, like up a mountain, God in a cloud, Moses there. It's, and I think it's meant to remind us of, of the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, uh, where, where the glory of God was not to be to be glimpsed by anyone except Moses. But now the disciples are, are being put into this place where they, where they themselves saw it. Peter continues his tradition of putting his foot in it and saying the wrong thing. He says, Master, it's good I'm here. We'll make three tents for you, which doesn't seem to make any sense at all. It's, it may have been a reference to the, uh, the, the Feast of Tabernacles where the... the the Israelites celebrated to rem uh, to every year. They built little tents all for themselves just to remember how once they used to be in the, lived in tents in the desert. Anyway, it was amazing and terrifying stuff for Peter and James and John. But then suddenly it's all over and Jesus was found alone. In the version in Matthew's Gospel, it says, when they looked up, they saw no one but Jesus. And that is very, very significant. Remember who Moses and Elijah were. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. So up till now, 
the law and the prophets had been in force. But now the disciples looked up and they saw no one but Jesus. <coughs> now a righteousness from God has been revealed apart from the law, but to which the law and the prophets testify. Romans chapter 3. So I think <coughs> that's, that's a, if you want a bridge or a connection between our two, the two of our readings today, between Jesus telling us to take up our cross and follow him and the transfiguration, on the surface they may appear to be not particularly related to each other. But Jesus said whoever would save his own life will lose it. Whereas the disciples looked up and saw no one but Jesus. I mean, we've thought we really live in a world that is full of people who are trying to save their own life, who are trying to, to come up with a righteousness of their own because everybody knows there is a God and that one day they will face him. And so they just sort of vaguely go on trying to, to live a life that will impress God. But it just cannot be done. We know that. The only righteousness we will have on that great day is the righteousness that comes from God. And whoever would save his own life will lose it. But the disciples looked up and saw no one but Jesus. Let's uh, <coughs> go through this tradition, this process that Jesus commands us to now where we remember what he has done for us. Um, it's a, a physical thing we do to remind us of a spiritual thing. That Jesus has died for us, died in our place, and his righteousness has been given to us in exchange for our sinfulness.